Brother Alex is going to come up and read God's word for us, and I'm going to pray before he does that. Father, we thank you for being a communicating God, and we ask you to speak now through your word to us and illumine our hearts to the light of Christ by your spirit. Amen. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to the go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, and he had appeared to him, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Alex, for reading God's word to us. Now, there are a lot of things being taught to us today in the movies we watch, the shows, the news that we read and listen to. Everything is a catechism. Everything's teaching us something about truth, whether or not it's true, whether or not it's harmful. But I wonder what you think would be the more harmful of the teachings. Like, hold it in your mind. Like, what do you think is the worst thing that's being taught in this world today? That's a good one, William. There's a lot of ideas and it depends on, you know, where you're going to land on a political spectrum or, you know, sort of where your faith background lies. But I'll tell you, it's not the most harmful thing being taught. It's not transgenderism in the classroom. It's not Christian nationalism. It's not critical race theory. The most harmful thing, I believe, being taught in this world today is easy believism. That if you just have enough faith, God's going to smooth out your life. Health, wealth, the victorious life can be yours now. You just got to believe enough. That's a very well-polished, attractive lie. Part of me wishes that I could stand up here and preach that to you today. Part of me wishes I could live that and that life would just, you know, become smooth sailing here on out. But that lesson would be harmful to you. It would be a betrayal of my master. From Genesis 12, 1 through 9, that Alex just read for us, we see that the truth about faith and following Jesus is something more complicated and more difficult than that. It's not easy. Faith is hard, and God is worth it. That's what we're going to talk about today. The road that leads to destruction is broad and easy. And the road that leads to eternal life has a cross on the hill. 
and the gates narrow, and the way is hard. So I'm kind of preaching a sermon to discourage you (laughs) from faith that's not real. Because thinking that you're on the right road when you're not is a dangerous thing. And Jesus doesn't want to leave people on the road to destruction. He really deeply cares that we're with him on the hard and good road. Jesus wanted nothing more in his earthly ministry that we see in the four Gospels than to fold the unbelieving peoples that he loved into his arms and to bring them from unbelief to belief, from no faith to faith, from death to life. But he also said this in Luke 14, if anyone, quote, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus just said three times that we cannot be his disciple. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're following Jesus if our life does not involve cost counting, renouncing, forsaking, and following. Faith is hard, and God is worth it. So we're talking about faith. Now, in the rest of the Bible, if you were to do like a concordance study on faith, you would find the name Abraham tied to the word faith a lot. Abraham is the man of faith. And you've probably also heard a lot of expository preachers talk about how the the, the characters in the Old Testament aren't just moral examples for us. And that's true, right? Um, David doesn't represent you slaying your giants. That's not the, the primary thrust of Scripture. However, the Bible constantly uses Abraham as an example of what we should be like. It constantly points back to Abraham, the father of our faith, not the founder and perfecter of it, but the father of it and says, look at that that faith. Praise God and live like that. He was the, the man of faith. So his journey then with God shows us what our journey with God should be like to some extent. So we're going to think about faith this morning from this text about Abram in light of the gospel, and we're going to do that by asking four questions. Number one, how do we get faith? Number two, what do we have faith in? Three, what do we do with our faith once we have it? And then four, why bother? What's the reward? So I don't expect you to remember all those, but I think they'll be up on the screen as we go along. So let's dive in. Um, We're looking at verse one right now in chapter 12. How do we get faith? The first part of that answer is that faith in God is an act of creation by God. Faith in God is a creative act of God. Genesis 12.1 begins with, and God spoke to Abram. And that's not casual conversation being recorded. It's not saying, you know, and they had a chat or God sent Abram an email. This God spoke is the fiat command of God, the word of God 
which called light into existence by just naming it. The word of God that created everything from nothing. When God spoke to Abram, he called into existence a new family, a new creation family, a people for himself. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 is reflecting on this passage, on this story, when he says this, uh, starting in verse 17, or I guess this is verse 17. Uh, he says in verse 17 that Abram was in the presence of God, quote, who gives life to the dead and speaks into existence the things that do not exist. So Paul's exegetical conclusion from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 is that faith and creation are integrally linked. In creation, there was nothing so nothing that God could not create everything from it. Nothing so... Did you get so, in other words, there's no void so vacant that God can't turn it inside out and create beauty and light and life from what was not there. The same is true of your faith and your lack of faith. There is no unbelief in your heart, no doubt so great that the Creator can't say, let there be light. And this gift of faith then, because faith is a gift, it comes through an encounter with God. Faith is a creative act by God that comes through an encounter with God. So in verse 1, again, this is not casual. God doesn't text Abram and say, hey, let's go, it's time, right? He, he says, well, he speaks. And we get a little bit of a, a clue to what that must have been like from Acts chapter 7. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But just think about this for a second. I mean, if you're following along in the story, Abram has spent what looks like decades in Haran, accumulating possessions, wealth, people. <laughs> um, he's a man of prestige and influence, probably a measure of power. He had a whole life for himself. And in one swift movement, he went from having everything and having lived a whole comfortable life over here to being a sojourner and an exile and dying in the land, just living in tents. He never built a house after that. He was a nomad. I don't know if we can even fathom the turnaround that Abram went through. So my question is, what on earth happened to him? Something happened to Abram to make him completely forsake his old life for a life of unknowns and homelessness. What happened? Acts chapter 7, verse 2. One of the most wonderful deacons in the New Testament, Stephen, is about to be stoned to death. And he begins preaching a sermon, as one does before they're stoned to death. And here's the beginning of his sermon. Acts 7, 2. Quote, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he left for Haran. The God of glory appeared to him. Abram saw the glory of God. All that's buried in the word, and God said. 
he saw the glory of God and he was overawed to the point of saying, you're amazing. I will literally do anything for you. I will follow you anywhere. God gives us faith through an encounter with his glory. It's always that way in scripture. Think about some of the main sort of characters through the story. God appeared to Moses. He was a shepherd over here, just doing his thing, 40 years. God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and his life is completely reoriented from that moment on around God. Similarly, left his known life for a life of wandering, discomfort. Um, God appeared to a wealthy court official named Isaiah. The record of this is in Isaiah chapter 6. God appeared to him in all of his glory, stunned Isaiah, and said, I've got a job for you now. And from that moment on, the rest of Isaiah's life, instead of the comforts of the court, was spent preaching and prophesying the gospel to a people who were spiritually deaf, never listened, and would eventually kill him for it. Moses and Isaiah saw the glory of God, and their lives were never the same. They received a faith that was living. The Apostle Peter saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and he left his fishing nets, he left his livelihood, he turned around and he followed that man. Eventually, he'd have to leave his religiosity too. When Peter encountered Jesus, everything changed and he received a faith. Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus, going to persecute the church. Jesus shows up, the risen Christ appears to him, blinds him with his glory, and the most persistent persecutor of the church is turned to the most profound and remarkable evangelist this world has ever known. He saw the glory of God. Encountering God in such a way that we see his glory with the eyes of our heart changes us into a people who live by faith. So either that's an unattractive idea to you, and you're like, well, those people lived really horrible, uncomfortable lives. I don't want that. Or something in your heart is saying, that's wonderful. There's honor and dignity and beauty in that life, and I want it. So the natural question then is, how do you encounter God's glory? What is the glory of God, and how do I get my hands on some so that I can be different? Because I want to be different. Thank you. I pay him for his amens. <laughs> Hebrews 1 says that Jesus himself is the radiance of the glory of God. If you want to be transformed by seeing the glory of God, you have to see Jesus. You have to see Jesus forsake his father's house and humble himself, taking on the form of a servant. You have to see Jesus obeying the Father perfectly and living a life unbelievably pure in the face of the strongest temptations the world has ever seen, tempted to the point of bleeding through his face with sweat. None of us have ever been pressed that hard. You have to see Jesus suffering the eternal wrath of God, condensed down into three brutal hours of eternal wrath on a Roman cross for you. You have to see Jesus defeat death and get back up from the grave, not resuscitated, but a new creation, full of life like never before. 
like nothing this world has ever seen. And you have to see him raised for your justification so that you can finally have peace with God and receive eternal life. You have to see Jesus ascending to heaven. Right now, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for you. You have to see him. You have to see him advocating for you when you sin. showing his wounds to the Father and saying, look what I did for them. So that you can receive fresh mercy and grace time and again your whole life. Excuse me. Jesus is the glory of God. And you have to see him. One glimpse, you'll never be the same. When you see the glory of God in the gospel, the spirit of God, hovers over your chaos waters, to put it in Genesis 1 language. And God says, let there be light. Faith exists. And it does. That's why we preach sermons. To see the glory of God. That's why we examine our Bibles. We say, Lord, show me your glory. I just need a glimpse of Jesus. All right, that's how we get faith. fine. Number two, what do we have faith in? In other words, what is the object of our faith? What are you believing in? Faith is just the noun form of believing the verb. What do you believe in? Well, good, because if faith isn't tethered to an object, it's silly optimism. Say that again. Faith has to be connected to something to have faith in. Otherwise, it's nothing. It's just deception and empty words. Look with me again at Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God said to Abram, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in just these two verses, There are five promises. That's remarkable. Maybe six, depending on how you read. So that you will be a blessing. I count that as a result of a promise. I see five promises here. Five times the word bless is used. Now, five times in two verses. Up until now, Genesis chapters 1 through chapter 11, the word bless is used five times. And now we meet Abram, and God comes down and says, I will, I will, I will, and bless. So promise and blessing, that's what this has to be about. That's what this the sort of theme of this text is promise and blessing. So what's this blessing all about? Now there's a lot to pick apart grammatically and you know, exegetically and historically, but quite simply, it's God's rescue plan. It's God's rescue plan for the whole world that he will bless one man and his family such that through him, through his family, the whole world will be blessed. It's God's salvation plan for the world that we call the gospel. Listen to Paul from Galatians 3, verse 8. And he says, quote, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, 
And here he quotes our verse, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul looks at Genesis 12, 1 through 9 and says, oh, that's a gospel sermon. God preached to Abraham justification by faith for the whole world right here in Genesis 12. In other words, and this is important, the faith is not in the promises. The faith is in the God of the promises. If our faith is just in the promise, it's not actually tethered to anything because the promise itself is just words. How good is a promise? It's only as good as the person making the promise. So how can you know then? What's the diagnostic if your faith is in the promise or the promiser? Well, how do you know? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It's a rhetorical question. Um, it's when you don't get the promise. Maybe ever in this life. When you don't get the thing that you want when you think that you should have it. If your world collapses, if you completely lose your footing, I'm telling you your feet were not planted on Christ. That's how you know. The Hall of Saints in Hebrews 11 ends by saying, you see all these great men and women of faith? They died with empty hands. They did not receive the substance of the things promised in this life, but they received it. They didn't need the promises when they had the promiser. Their hope was not set on being happy and healthy tomorrow. It was set on eternal life with Christ forever, though the way there is death. Any promise is only as good as the one making the promise. And if he's good, and if he's trustworthy, then you can put your faith in him. You don't have to lean on the promise. You lean on the one who makes the promise. Your faith is only as good as its object. Pardon me. All right, so that's points one and two. How, how do we get faith and what do we have faith in? Let's go to point number three. Um, what do we do with it? All right, so you've received faith as a gift of God. You encountered the glory. You've seen the gospel and it's done something to you. Now, what do you do? Look with me again. We're going to read verses 4 through 9 of chapter 12. And let's think about what Abram does. So look at the sort of verbs connected with Abram here. Starting in verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. By the way, Paul says in Galatians 3.16 that that is singular offspring and points to Jesus directly. So Paul likes grammar too. To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. 
And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So if you remember our James series from last year, or if you've just read James, you'll remember that faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. So faith is only a pseudo-faith if it doesn't move, if it doesn't do something. So what did Abram do with his faith? Well, three basic things. Uh, He went, as the Lord told him, he built altars and he prayed, or called upon the name of the Lord. So he obeyed, he worshipped, and he prayed. That's what faith does. Faith obeys, worships, and prays. But obedience, I mean, obedience was hard for Abram. It wasn't just, it wasn't telling, you know, when you tell a kid to do something they already delight to do, obedience feels easy. You're like, oh, man, obeying mom and dad, this is a cakewalk, right? You tell them to do something that they don't want to do. It's a whole other matter. Or something that's incredibly difficult that they don't feel that they're up to the task for. I mean, imagine the life Abram had to leave behind. The, the threefold um, thing that God told him to leave is like a summary of the values of the ancient world. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. He had to forsake it all and follow God. Side note, I'm not certain that he did that very well. I'm still thinking that through. He took Lot, and so he took his kindred with him. But the Bible also is careful to say Lot went with him first. We'll come back to that later, I think, another day. Um, But nonetheless, an imperfect faith is still a faith. I'll never forget Keller saying, uh, going through the Red Sea, walls of water on either side, there's two kinds of Israelites following Moses. There are the ones who are like, this is awesome. Look at this place. The the water is just standing there. And the other ones are like, oh no, get me through. This is horrible. Both of them got through. Weak faith, big faith. Faith is faith. It's no different with Jesus and his disciples. You still have to forsake and you have to follow. Jesus walks around through the pages of the Gospels, coming to people with whole lives and saying, follow me. Let's go. Leave and come this way. And everywhere the Bible is read and the Gospel is preached today, Jesus still walks through this earth through his Spirit and his church, saying, forsake and follow. We saw obedience to that this morning. Jesus is still asking us to forsake our old life and follow him, to leave our comforts, our false securities, our crumbling foundations, and to become sojourners and exiles in this world. He's calling us to leave comfort and embrace suffering, guys. I wish it were easier, but I think this is more beautiful. So if you feel that you're a Christian, and your faith hasn't demanded that you forsake things. I think you've got business to do with Christ. Let me read to you from Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, Jesus and his disciples, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. 
But this guy said, well, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, hard words, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks very strongly about what living faith looks like. Pseudo-faith says, I'll follow you wherever you go, but just give me a few minutes. I got some business to sort out first. I've got some life to live first. St. Augustine, before he was actually, before he encountered the glory of God in the Gospels, back around 400 AD, Augustine prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. He wanted to live some life before God sanctified him. He wanted to have a good time first. And Jesus says, no one who looks back is fit. Real faith forsakes and follows. Jesus' disciples left their professions, their boats, their fathers, their tax booths, everything. Jesus sums it up in Matthew 10. He says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's not talking about martyrdom only. To lose your life for the sake of Christ means to do what Abram did and go from country and kindred and father's house, leave your comforts and follow Jesus. My friend John Farmer, who some of you may know, put it this way, and I, it stuck with me. He said, the gospel is so weighty, so massive, that you have to put down whatever's in your hands just so you can receive it. Abram had to lose his old life to follow God, and so did Peter, Andrew, James, John, Levi, Paul, Augustine, Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, George Mueller, Jim Elliott, Norm Jufer, Michelle Merrick, Morgan Pitney, Carol Police, all of us. It's the way. We're among, if we leave our old life and follow Christ, a cloud of witnesses. The ones who followed Jesus into a life of wandering and difficulty because he's worth it. What else would be? Because we've encountered his glory and we've seen that nothing could be better than to get close to this God. Nearness. Just a closer walk to thee. I find that the saints of God, and I don't mean like, you know, St. Veronica, I mean like y'all, are a deep, one of the most profound encouragements to my faith. Because I know you. I've known, I know your stories. And I know what you've turned your back on to follow him. And I also know that self-preservation is the most natural human thing in the world. So when someone chooses to die to themselves, instead of to, you know, let it go, can't hold it back anymore, like let your heart lead the way thing and live for yourself, that's a miracle. I have no other recourse rationally than to say either we're all delusional or we've encountered Christ and the glory of God. 
So when you see the saints praising God in the lion's den, there's been an encounter. Now in our text, we saw that Abram not only obeyed God by forsaking and following, he also worshiped and he prayed along his journey. Worship is a response of faith to seeing the glory of God and experiencing his kindness. And at every stage of his journey, Abram builds altars. I find it very interesting that these were, the land of Canaan at this point in history was occupied. It says right before this, the Canaanites were in the land at that time. They weren't just there, they were settled there. They were dug in. They had their own religious systems. And guess where they loved to build altars? Hilltops and under tall trees. So it's very likely, I would almost say certain, that Abram walks to the Oak of Moray near Shechem, sees a Canaanite altar, and says, no, I'm going to build one. I'm not worshiping their God. I'm not worshiping their God in their way. I've encountered a God like no other. I'm going to build him an altar and worship him. I'm going to offer my thanksgiving and my praise to him. You've kept me safe on the journey. You called me from nothing and you've preserved me. Worship. But right before he finds or he builds the first altar, the text says two things. One, the Canaanites were in the land, as we just talked about. The land is occupied. And then two, the Lord appeared to him again and said, I'm going to give this occupied land to your offspring. And that's when Abram builds an altar, worships, and calls upon the name of the Lord in prayer. Why? Because faith is most clearly seen against the backdrop of impossibility. When faith bumps into impossibilities, it worships. There are two impossibilities here. The first is that the land God is promising to give him is already occupied by very fierce people who are very numerous and didn't want to leave. And Abram's like one guy. The second impossibility is that God promised to give his offspring the land. But what do we know about Sarai, his wife? She can't have children. We learned that last week in chapter 11 at the end. And against the backdrop of those impossibilities, Abram does not waver in his faith. He doesn't dismiss God and go back to Haran like maybe I would have. He worships. Lord, only you could do such a great and marvelous thing. Then he prays to God. He calls upon the name of the Lord. That means to ask God to do what he said he would do and what only he can do. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. I wonder what impossibilities stand in your path. Certainly there are some. God has promised us the peace of Christ, but maybe you're full of conflict, guilt. It's an impossibility. God has promised to heal us in Jesus, by whose stripes we're healed, but maybe your body, your heart, or your mind has fractures in it that won't mend. God's promised to fill us with joy. Maybe your soul is full of sorrow. He's promised to write his law on our hearts so that we delight to do his will, but maybe you just keep going after the same sin again and again and again and delighting in that more. God has promised to build his church into a place of beauty and integrity but maybe you've been deeply harmed by the church in the name of Jesus. 
It's an impossibility. Against that backdrop, faith worships and asks God to do what he said he would do. You realize you're invited to hold God to it. He wants you to. He wants you to read your Bible, see promises for his people, and go, you said. Now please do it for your namesake. That's how you pray. God delights in that kind of faith. God rewards that kind of faith. It's not blind faith. It's not spiritual optimism. It's a settled certainty because we have encountered the glory of God and it has changed us in a way that we cannot account for otherwise. Because of the gospel, we know that the God of the promises is good and true and trustworthy. He proved it to us already. So we obey and worship and pray, and we do it especially against the backdrop of our impossibilities. All right, last point. What is the reward of faith? Underneath everything I'm saying here today is the desire to show you that God is worth it. That whatever he's asking you to leave, whether it's things that you love in your life and enjoy, habits, or whether it's people, or whatever, that he's worth it. And he's so good that he actually rewards us for our faith that we've received from him. So he gives us faith from him as a gift and then looks at us and goes, hey, nice faith you've got there, and rewards us for that. How kind is that? So don't mistake me for saying that we earn a reward with faith. That's not, that's, faith is not a work that we do for God. Paul says it best in Ephesians 2. He says that we have been saved by grace through faith so that, purpose statement, so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when you follow God in faith, what you get is the God of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, setting his mind on you, his heart on you, and determining to spend all eternity showing you how much he loves you. Lavishing you with love forever. One step after another into greener pastures with God for eternity. That's why he saved you. So God doesn't call you to forsake and follow for this brief mortal life because he's a taskmaster. He calls us out of a self-centered life because without faith, we're killing ourselves comfortably. And he calls us out of death so he can give us that kind of life that Paul was talking about, the so that God can spoil you with love life forever. He calls us out of Ur of the Chaldeans so he can give us Eden. Now, as I wrap this up, I want to say that this sermon, like most, is primarily kind of directed to the family of faith, to people who have loved Jesus, put their trust and faith in Jesus, follow him, that we want to know God better through his word. We want to love him more. We want our faith to grow stronger. That might not be all of us, that statistically in a room, it's not, right? Some of you may not be followers of Jesus yet at all. And Honestly, we're glad you're here, and we appreciate the honor that you've shown us. 
Some of you are brand new Christians and are wondering what you've got yourself into (laughs) and what comes next. And some of you maybe have been in the church a long time and are wrestling with real sincere doubts that are threatening to make shipwreck of your soul. And to all of you, I want to mention this before we close. Do not think for a moment that faith is simply a matter of blind trust or overwhelming emotion. There is overwhelming emotion in the Christian life, sometimes, but not all the time. And none of us would be wise to hang our eternal future and our whole lives on a moment of big emotion. Now, the Bible's full of a lot of different characters, different theologians, all kinds. Jeremiah is the depressed theologian. Ezekiel was a bit of a mystic. Isaiah was artsy. David was the theologian of the heart. You want to know what to do with your emotions? Go read David's Psalms. But Abram, Abram was the theologian of the mind. He was sharp. He was a thinking man. He was strategic. So when Abram decided to abandon his life and give it all up for this unknown foreign god who spoke to him, it was a calculated decision. It was thoughtful. We see that also in Genesis 22 when God says, go offer up your son, your only son whom you love. Hebrews says, Abram sat down and had a think and said, well, I know the character of God. I've seen it. Therefore, if he's made me a promise based on this son's life, but now has asked me to end his life, then the only thing I can consider is that God will raise him back from the dead, in which case I'm in. He reckoned. Similarly, when the God of glory appeared to Abram in Mesopotamia, he sat down and had a long think, most likely. This God is glorious. If anyone could pour out his riches eternally, it would be him. He considered. This God is powerful. Maybe he heard about Babel. (laughs) I know what you can do, Lord. So you could fulfill even your impossible promises to me. This God is gracious. I mean, I was worshiping the moon. And he still chose me. I could serve a gracious God like that. I'm inviting you today to sit down and have a think. If the Bible is true, and if you think it's true, you're in fantastic company throughout history, by the way. If it's true, then you have very good reason to forsake whatever he's asking you to and follow him. I am not asking you to abandon reason and take up faith. They are not diametrically opposed to each other. Not in the slightest. I'm asking you to pursue the truth. Put yourself in the way of the gospel where the glory of God is revealed in the person of Jesus. Examine your Bibles. Take time. Dig in. Read old dead theologians and thinkers. Go read the Confessions by St. Augustine. Read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by Calvin. Find Blaise Pascal thinkers. Let them think with you. Listen to sermons. Pray. 
get in the way of the gospel. And as you do that, look for glimpses of glory. Because God loves, loves to show people like us who don't deserve it, the beauty of the gospel and the person of Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. And when he does that, I encourage you, be brave, be thoughtful, follow him. Faith is hard, but God is so worth it. Let me pray for us as um, Ryan comes forward for communion as well. Father, I'm just in awe of your goodness toward me today. And I personally feel um, that you've preached to me in the last 30 minutes, and I really am thankful for that. I ask that you will satisfy our minds and our intellects, overwhelm our hearts with awe, and move our feet to follow you wherever you go. You're worth it. We love you. Amen.